Brian Busby is a literary historian who lives in St. Mary's, Ontario, and who has an interest in Canadian books and literary history. In the last how many years have you been focusing in on Montreal Noir? Not very long, actually. Maybe you could tell us what what it is and why it fascinates. A noir fiction is something that is not... I have to be honest, not the thing I would typically read. You would consider it mystery fiction. It's it's almost a, a literary equivalent of film noir, and typically involving some sort of mystery, a world that's quite dark, where even the hero has uh, some flaws and is uh, usually actually not a very nice person. Everything, everyone seems to be, you know, in the words of the immortal Johnny Rotten, no one is innocent. Everyone is slightly bad to some extent, and no one is completely good. Uh, so there's, there's no white in, in noir. It's not necessarily the writing that, that appeals. It's more the book as object? Well, both. Uh, the book as object is an interesting thing because the Montreal noir is a very uncommon object now. It's, it's very expensive to, to track down, if you can track them down, even with the age of the Internet, or the aid of the Internet, for that matter. They're not typically held by libraries, although you know, some place like the Thomas Fisher at U of T, which specializes in very rare documents, uh, has some but not all. And they were typically books that were produced extremely cheaply, had just one print run, not made to last. Not made to last, that's that's for sure. Uh, and really were almost seen as disposable objects even when they came out. They were not sold in bookstores. They were sold at newsstands and perhaps drugstore spinner racks. And they really were considered almost like a magazine. You know, you yeah. read your magazine, you throw it away. Yeah. You wouldn't uh, think to keep it. The books I'm, I'm speaking of, when I, when I talk about Montreal Noir, they were published uh, between... I would say 1949 to 1954, 1955. So it's a very brief period in Montreal's literary history where you had um, people like Breen Moore, Ted Allen, the newspaper man named Al Palmer, and then another couple of writers who, who wrote these generally disposable books, and they really did write them for money. Why was there such a short span then? Well, the very first book that I could identify that I would identify as Montreal Noir is a book Ted Allen wrote under pseudonym uh, called "Love Is a Long Shot." And I, I've got to be clear because there's some, going to be some people who say, "Well, I know that book." In 1985, he won the Leacock Medal for that book. It's not the same book. He recycles a lot of the material, including the title, which is a very good title. The 1984 Leacock winner is light, and it's about these Montreal criminals who are kind of lovable types. You know, they're, they're rogues, they're bad boys, but they've got hearts of gold, and it, it takes place, for the most part, in a uh, cigar store that is a front for a bookie joint. This is the 84 or the this original? This is the 84, and okay. the original yeah. takes place in a cigar store that's a front for a bookie joint as well, but it's incredibly dark. I won't describe the scene, but uh, I, I think it has one of the most disturbing scenes in Canadian literature. I'm not even sure if I've read a more disturbing scene than what's in that book. So there's something intriguing. Of course, you have to go find the book now. <laughs> right. But my question was, why such a short span? Okay, well, with Love is a Long Shot, it was published by a company called Newsstand Library. They did a lot of these books, and it was easy money. You just churn it out. And that company burnt to the ground <laughs> after after a few years. Based in Montreal? Uh, no, they were a Toronto company. Okay. So they, they were gone. 
there were others like Harlequin, which eventually morphed into being a romance company. But again, based in Toronto. They were based in Toronto. Oh, they right. were all based in Toronto. But yeah. the, the authors, someone, some editor or someone, identified, what, a group of Montreal authors who wrote about Montreal? I think they were taking advantage of something that happened in the post-war era. There was a flurry of activity, and this happened south of the border, and I think the Canadians tried to take advantage of it themselves. Uh, to um, emulate it? To emulate it, and it yeah. was something called the City Exposé, and so you had non-fiction titles like New York Confidential, Chicago yeah. Confidential. Well, in Canada, there was a Montreal Confidential, it was written by this man I mentioned before, a Montreal journalist named Al Palmer. So these were just oh, they were nonfiction books, and it was all about local, uh, petty, uh, local criminals. petty criminals. Advice for the person coming to Montreal, you know, a little tip on, you know, if you want to sneak a girl up to your room, this is <laughs> this is who you tip, and and uh, go in through the side door, don't go in through the lobby. And the city expose. It's interesting in that Montreal was the only Canadian city to have one of these. Why not Toronto? Well, I think Toronto is a different city, you know. It's like cleaner or more proper? Or Well, I think and anyone who's read William Weintraub's uh, City Unique about Montreal knows that it was known as an open city, that there, were, there was a lot of booze, and there were a lot of drugs, too. There were a lot of brothels. And it was it was very much open until say the late fifties when uh, when Jean Drapeau was really on the rise and things changed. But it had a reputation like that even in New York. I mean, it, it, yeah. as, as weird as it seems, people from New York would come to Montreal to have a good time. I mean. It, Granted, you didn't have to worry about running into anyone on the street who yeah. you knew, but also it was a city where there was a lot of gambling, you know, and, and uh, these books capture that world. North America's Babylon. Yeah, and, and so I think one of the interesting things is even though there are some noirish type books that were written by Torontonians, I can only think of one that's actually set in Toronto. You know, they would, it's a book called The Door Between by Neil Perrin. Uh, that was an nom de plume, and I, I can't remember the his, his real name. It's actually one of my favorite kind of pulp novels that came out of Canada. It's just so odd on so many levels. I've written about it on my blog. I often think that the author might have been working through some issues <laughs> because it's ju it just seems so strange. But the thing I was going to say about the Montreal ones is, uh, you know, you have, of course, uh, Love is a Long Shot beginning, but then a few months later you have the second one that I identify as Montreal Noir, and it's, it's a book called um, Sugar Puss on Dorchester Street by Al Palmer. And then you have others like The House on Craig Street, uh, The Body on Mount Royal, Crime on Cotonege, Murder Over Dorval. Montreal is always in the titles, and yet with the Torontonians, they would never put Toronto in the title or, or anything relating to Toronto in the title. And as I say, they were playing to, I think, an American market. And I think that's also why you stopped seeing these books written about Montreal. Because of Drapeau? It wasn't necessarily Drapeau. I think these the Canadian paperback houses, there became fewer of them. It just maybe wasn't so economical it, for them what, anymore? Well, you, it, it got to the point where you were starting to, you wanted to write for the um, Americans, you know, which, which would offer bigger money. And so you had somebody like Brian Moore who set his first two novels in Montreal. And then when I say his first two novels, they really were his first two novels. They preceded Judith Hearn. Those were set in Montreal. And then after that, all the writing he did, he did five more pulp novels, were all for New York publishers. Interestingly, they weren't set in, in the States, a, a country he hadn't 
lived in to that point. They were set in places he'd been, like Mallorca or Paris, or you know, there's one called Murder in Mallorca. What intrigues me about these is we are talking about a time in Canadian literary history where very, very few Canadian novels were being published every year. And many of the ones that were were by people like Thomas B. Costain. So maybe it would be a historical novel set in Canada, or maybe it was set in the Middle Ages in Europe. So I guess what I'm saying is that there's very little in the fiction of that time that captures Montreal as it was at the time the author was writing it. So it has historical relevance. I think it does. I think it does. It captures a Montreal that somebody like Hugh McLennan didn't really pay too much attention to, or um, Gwendolyn Graham in Earth and High Heaven. I use those two because uh, Earth and High Heaven was a post-war novel. It was published, I think, right in 1946 or about there. Won the Gigi. Yes, and then you have Hugh McLennan with The Watch That Ends the Night, which I, I think is his best novel. And that came late in the 50s. And I can't really think of another Montreal novel except for this little flurry, this uh, six-year flurry of activity. In English, uh, of course. Yes. So I think they're, they're interesting in a way because they do capture that Montreal. And they capture just little, little things. I was reading Murder Over Dorval the other day. Uh, there is a murder. It takes place. It actually doesn't take place over Dorval. And, and in the book, it's even apparent that, you know, they're not even close to landing. So, okay. <laughs> But, you know, it's just got this local, this little bit of color and a little bit of detail that introduces you to a different world. And in that book, for example, you have the main character taking a plane from LaGuardia in 1952 or 51. It's all about, you know, the process he went through to check in, how the, the man who's in charge of checking in really has nothing else to do, and there are only about 12 people on the flight anyway. You know, it's this very leisurely, leisure world. And him saying things like, now when you get to Dorval, would you, will you be taking the airline car into town? You know, the idea that there is this little service, I, I had no idea. The content <laughs> is obviously something that's, that's of interest. It is. It is, but it's really, it, it's that and the setting, you know, Sugarpuss on Dorchester Street. It, why Dorchester Street? If anyone knows Montreal, they know, first of all, it became Dorchester Boulevard, and when I was young, that street was the most sterile street in the world. In that book, it is the center of Montreal nightlife, and that's where all the clubs and all the burlesque houses were and all the restaurants, and then, you know, about 10 years later, that was gone. And, of course, it's not even called Dorchester Street anymore. Now it's René Levesque. In almost all of the books, at some point, the private eye will drive onto uh, Dakari, and almost all of them will refer to Dakari as the Sunset Strip. Well, but when I was growing up, Dakari was a, a trench that had been built so you could run a highway through it. There was nothing like that. But this was where you went. There were um, theaters, uh, lots bars. of there were bars and restaurants and gambling houses that were all built in this kind of American roadhouse style, you know, and, and some were a lot nicer than others. And uh, you get these descriptions of a Montreal that vanished and is not in the fiction, as I say, of Hugh McLennan or more mainstream. Richler was writing about a different Montreal, too. You know, his yeah. Montreal was the downtown and definitely around the Maine and the 50s. Yeah. What about as object, bodice-ripping covers? Uh, that's obviously appealing. It is in a way. I mean, it's appealing and, and it's disturbing at the same time. You know, Love is a Long Shot, the scene I, dis- I, I talked about is the scene they use on the cover. Some of them are lovely. Uh, I'm involved with reviving these books with Vehicle Press. I have a series called Ricochet Books. Uh, we've put out two so far, and we've used the original covers, which are 
wonderful vintage covers. Uh, we decided not to do it for the third, and not to even try to do it for the third, because the first two books were published by Collins White Circle. The third book that we're going to be bringing out, Body on Mount Royal, was published by Harlequin, and they're notoriously litigious. And we knew they wouldn't give us permission. It wasn't even worth, worth asking. Who, who did the, the covers? Were you able to track that down? In some not? cases it's known, and others it's not. The first two, uh, we didn't know. Okay. We just didn't know, and and I would have credited them if I, yeah. I could have. Yeah. But we really, you would only know if it, if there was a signature there, and yeah. even then, you might know it was by somebody named Jones, and and that would be the end of the story, or at least call, someone calling himself Jones. But you know, when you were talking about the cover, the original for Body on Mount Royal is the best Harlequin cover I've ever seen out of Lord knows how many thousands <laughs> they've done. But it's mm. it's a wonderful cover of a, of a man holding his head, beautifully painted, kind of starting to tumble towards you. And behind him is a woman who's obviously just swung a bottle and hit him. And, and of course, she's beautiful, you know, yeah. the beautiful knockout woman in the low-cut evening gown. And would that we could have used it. But these books, they often sold things that weren't in the book. In the 50s, you, you saw it more with classics, certainly. You know, I've, I've seen William Faulkner made out to be just about the spiciest thing you could possibly <laughs> read. You know, Signet did that in the, in the States, so they, they would do that a lot. In my research, one of the favorite things I came upon was... Uh, Robertson Davies' father, Senator Rupert Davies, was uh, a defender against censorship. And none of the Montreal Noir ones, incidentally, but so many of them were seized and probably burnt by uh, authorities, especially, um, and it could have been anywhere, Toronto, Windsor, et cetera, et cetera. Montreal seemed to be really left alone for a long time. Rupert Davies, uh, he, he defended them. He didn't defend them as, as works of literature. No. But if people wanted to read them, that was fine. And he said the only charge he couldn't defend them on was false advertising because they often made it seem a lot more exciting than what was actually inside. Is it you who have said, okay, these are the noir, or is, is there some other authority to appeal to? I think there's kind of a consensus out there. But could, could someone, like if I found something in a corner bookstore that you've never seen before, I mean, is, there such, is that a possibility? <laughs> I hope so. Which I is, have my doubts. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't, not because I'm, I'm blowing my own horn, it's just no. I... I you know, scoured there. I've really scoured it, and you know, so have other people. Okay. And, uh, you know, the wonderful thing about that world, uh, being introduced to people like Jim Fitzpatrick in Dartmouth, who's been doing all sorts of work on uh, Canadian paperback imprints. Jim's a collector of these books to begin with, and he has put together comprehensive bibliographies of every publisher. So really, I think the only re way we could ever find anything more is if we learned not only that a title existed that we didn't know existed, but a publisher existed yeah. and we didn't know existed. It's kind of a sad world in a way for Jim, I find. It's, he's done too good a job. He's, well, he's come to the point where yeah. it, it's a finite world. He's been collecting for years, so now his collection is complete. All, all he can do is you know, see if maybe, maybe this one's going to be in better shape. Oh, really, it's, you're down to collecting for condition, <laughs> and, and even that's getting harder and harder and more expensive. The very first one of these I remember buying was Brian Moore's The Executioners. How much you pay for it? I, I paid $3 for it. This is in the 80s. I found it, oddly, across from the, there was a bookstore across from the Montreal Gazette where Brian Moore was a copy editor. Not, not in that building, but uh, 
it, I, I still thought it was a funny connection. I mm. was thrilled to find it, especially in the days before the internet. You, mm. you just relied on chance and uh, maybe a catalog. But so, what about today's collector? Uh, these nine books. Is it an impossible task to no, no. I, I think get you them? can still do it. It's an impossible task to get them for a decent price. It's what do you mean by decent? Oh, you know, what's that old thing? What, what are you looking for, sir? I'm, I'm looking for a thousand dollar book at a ten dollar price. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it depends on the book. I found that generally now these nine will begin at uh, the low end will be $25, and that's for maybe a very specific title at the high end. Well, there's some people who will charge 350 for Reith, for Redhead, which was Breen Moore's first book. We're getting, We're up, getting there, up, but, up there, but it's not it's, – it's not, I'm, I'm actually a bit surprised. I thought it would be uh, – well, maybe I'm not because I know Canadian books in general right, are, are sorely right. undervalued. But Yeah. I think but, the, the really tricky thing is that there are a few that are now getting to the point where if you did go to, say, someplace like Abe, you would not get a hit at all. On a want list, I can't say how long you'd be waiting. I, I'd imagine something would come up eventually, but that's the really unfortunate thing. It used to be – much, much easier. They can always get the vehicle editions. Uh, there have been two so far, and we're planning to do two a year and okay. just keep going forward. So, so far we've done uh, David Montrose, Crime on Cote de Neige, Murder Over Dorval. Uh, the Body on Mount Royal should be coming out in May. After that, uh, we're going to switch away from David Montrose. I, I'm, I'm hoping to do the uh, Ted Allen book. Uh, the thing about those, of course, is that they're published on decent paper. They're not yeah. made to fall <laughs> apart, but we try to be uh, – we're true to the format in that they're in a mass market paperback format, but on decent paper, well-bound, and they all have forwards that are written specifically for the edition. Available in bookstores? You can or? get them in bookstores. They retail for $12. Okay. Also, if you have the original and you want to keep it in good shape. By the vehicle, so you could read the vehicle yes. and uh, keep the other copy. one in a little in a little plastic bag, <laughs> the way comic book collectors do. Well, thanks for uh, wetting our appetite and uh, hopefully inspiring some young collectors to go after these important documents. Really, aren't they? They represent a time in Montreal's history, but I think they represent time uh, and a fleeting time in in, Montre in uh, Canadian paperback publishing and uh, Canadian literature, uh, uh, genre writing that had a a moment in the sun and disappeared. Good, thanks again. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Brian Busby, who is a uh, literary historian based in St. Mary's, Ontario, Canada.